you want to do that. Um, good evening, everyone. As Stephanie said, I'm Karina Van Vliet. What she didn't say is I'm a very proud member of both the City Club of Cleveland and the Cleveland Council on World Affairs, and I'm just thrilled to be here tonight and see so many people. We are very lucky to have Josh Goodman here with us tonight. He is the um, Andean News Director for the Associated Press, and he's been covering Latin America for over 15 years for both the Associated Press and Bloomberg. And um, as we mentioned, Josh is a um, Cleveland native. He's actually from Shaker. So welcome to the West Side. It's great to have you over. <laughs> um, you know, and among his, um, so we, we're, we have the benefit of 15 years of experience covering the region. And uh, Josh currently lives in Bogota in Colombia, but he travels to Venezuela about every six weeks. And he, we've talked about this. He is absolutely fascinated by what's going on. And we're really looking forward to hearing what he has to say about the country. So we've all read the headlines about Venezuela on the verge of chaos, about the hyperinflation, about the political crisis. Um, what I wanted to start off the conversation tonight with, Josh, is just your human experience of going to Venezuela, what it's like to be in Venezuela right now, and just to give us a bit of the color and the flavor of what's going on in the country. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for for the invitation. It's nice to be here. Um, when I go to Venezuela, and I've been going there basically since 2013 on a regular basis, and I, and I lived there for a year, you know, what do I see? I see people increasingly sifting through trash. I see people waiting in line all day for a bag of rice. I see people, uh, you know, there's no cash anymore. The society has basically lost any sense of cash, which is a problem, especially for the poor, people who don't have bank accounts, because there's four, maybe five-digit inflation every year. Um, you know, when you look at it from a broader historical perspective, it very much looks like what I can only consider a failed state. Uh, it's something very unique in Latin America. I've been, as you mentioned, I've been reporting from Latin America for a long time. I've seen a lot of crises. I was just by, I was there in Argentina when Argentina imploded in, in 2001. But this is on a different scale. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you see, it's beginning to look what I used to see also when I would go to Cuba for a while as well, where you see people who are physically thin, uh, their clothes hang on their bodies in a way that uh, speaks to their uh, despair. So I think, you know, this is readily apparent to anyone who arrives in Venezuela. There's almost no economic activity to speak of. And it's a country that has, you know, fallen so far that, you know, you never know if it can fall any further. But it actually always seems to fall a little further every time I go. Whenever you think it's touched bottom, the next time I go, it's, 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 it seems to be even worse off. And so where does this, where did this all, this decline, this rapid decline start? Was it this year? Was it when Maduro took office after the death of Chavez? Was it before? Can you sort of give us sort of a summary of historically how we ended up here? Well, it's, you know, people think of, a lot of people know about Hugo Chavez, a very charismatic leader and, 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 and you know, very confrontational, combative, you know, famously called George Bush the devil, basically, at the United Nations. Uh, but this didn't start with him. I mean, I think... A lot of the people uh, failed to recognize that Venezuela was in, you know, speaking about illiberal democracies, it was a pretty much, it was heading in this direction basically for the, since the 70s. Um, this, this is by any measurement, should have been one of the richest countries in the world, almost a 
Gulf state in Latin America. They literally sit on the world's uh, largest oil reserves. Um, and, you know, they have everything. They have a very small population, generally speaking. It's now 29 million, but, you know, that's small by, by Latin American standards. Lots of land. Uh, in the 1940s and 50s, they received a huge influx of immigrants from Europe, people fleeing the war. Uh, other countries in Latin America, when they were in dictatorship in the 60s and 70s, uh, they fled to, their people fled to, to Venezuela and we found jobs as, as businessmen, lawyers, doctors. So they have all the conditions to be one of the most prosperous countries in the world. But I think what happened over time is they basically, and, and you know, there's a lot of literature about this of you know, how people misspend that resource wealth, they basically became very fat on oil and they squandered the wealth. It wasn't, but, uh, but it's very important to remember that Hugo Chavez didn't sort of just come out of nowhere. Um, you know, the people who preceded him in power were very much discredited. They basically, uh, there was a lot of corruption, not, not on the scale that we're seeing now, but there was certainly a lot of corruption. And the political system and the economic system was very closed off. It was basically uh, accessible only to those white European elites. And this is a very diverse country. I mean, there's, 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 there's tons of minorities and uh, there's tons of poor people like there is in all of Latin America. So when Hugo Chavez came around, and remember, he first uh, sort of became of note to the Venezuelans. The Venezuelans had never heard of him uh, until actually just two days ago, on the 4th of February in 1992. He, as a very much of a junior officer, I think he was, he was a tank commander, he, he took a small battalion and tried to seize the government. Now, this was a country very proud of its democracy up until then, but they, they were thrilled that this guy had done that and shook, shook things up. Um, and, you know, he was arrested. It didn't, the, the coup failed. And he basically said, I haven't achieved my objectives. And the famous word that every Venezuelan knows is for now. And then he came back uh, later, won by, elect won by a, a clean election. And, you know, he was very much applauded. Even the establishment by then had really come around and realized that they couldn't continue the way they were going. And Hugo Chavez, you know, he had a lot of faults. But one of the things that you cannot criticize him for was he had his heart in the, he was devoted to the poor people. He was poor himself. And I think that, you know, the sadness of this situation is that they became, this, this revolution, the Chavista revolution, I think was really born a very noble, um, honest, and um, admirable aspirations. And the fact that it's arrived to the point where it is now is, is, is very sad, because I don't think that any poor person in Venezuela wants to go back to what it was, even today. Um, no poor person really wants to go back. I'll just, a small anecdote. When I lived in Caracas, we had a maid. It was one of the nice things that you could do as a person earning dollars in, in, in a foreign country. She was from Colombia, uh, originally the maid. There were about three million Colombians who had fled to Venezuela over the years, fleeing instability in their country. When we moved with my family back to, when we moved to Colombia, I, I, I said to the maid, well, you know, why don't you come with us? We'll employ you. You know, it's a the country's falling to pieces, why don't you come with us? And she said no. And I think, you know, that speaks to the fact that being a poor person in Venezuela until very recently was better than being a poor person in any other country. I don't think that's true anymore, but I'm talking about only two years ago where it really was uh, like that. So one of the things that I've found fascinating I'd like your insights on is the way that Maduro has been able to 
co-opt different institutions of power and basically rule as practically an autocrat. I mean, a lot of commentators have said it's no longer a democracy. And the fact that he could call a constituent assembly that is filled with his supporters, dismiss the national, the parliamentarians, and sort of, you know, schedule presidential elections and kind of rule by decree. How did, what things that Maduro and then before him, Chavez, politically, what they put into place to get to that level of control over society, politically? Well, you know, Hugo Chavez was very, in some ways, authoritarian. He, you know, had a credible connection with the people. He was very much of a populist. Um, but he was also much more of a skilled politician and pragmatist than people realized. He always knew up to what point he could go. Uh, people forget, by the way, that Hugo Chavez rang the bell at the New York Stock Exchange, you know, shortly after he, he took office. That was sort of the thing that he was really good at. Um, you know, he would nationalize oil fields, including ones that were owned by Exxon, Rich, Rex Tillerson's company, but then he would always pay them very good money in compensation. So he was, he also just by force of personality kept all of these factions, all of these different interest groups pretty much happy. And you know, it coincided with a big boom in oil prices and that helped a lot too. Uh, you know, Maduro lacks that charisma. When he took office, they sort of derided him. Uh, they did a play on his name. Instead of Maduro, they would call him Malburro, which translates as basically like, you know, a, a bad donkey. Um, and everyone, myself, a lot of journalists included, uh, sort of gave him a year in power. We thought that he didn't have that charisma to keep it all together. Uh, I've now changed my views on that. I think that he's proven himself much more of a tactician, um, than I think anyone realized. He's given a lot of power to the military. He has allowed, um, he wouldn't say this, and, and perhaps it's being a little unfair, but there are a lot of corruption networks uh, going on in, in Venezuela, and I think that you know, a lot of people would say that those are still thriving. Um, so you could say that perhaps you know, he's allowing them to thrive. Uh, and you know, he, 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 he's also amazingly managed to uh, retain a certain amount core support among the Venezuelan people and the international community. Uh, you know, obviously the U.S. And, and many countries have have criticized him, but you know, they can't kick him out of the OAS. The Organization of American States will, will not kick him out because he's got a lock on on support from the Caribbean nations. So you know, he's proven, I think, a lot smarter than people realize. He sort of plays this uh, Joe Sixpack sort of persona. He says, you know, sometimes little Hugo Chavez talks to him like a bird. Um, you know, he dances salsa with his wife on stage. Um, you know, I don't know, he's a former bus driver. He, he plays that up very well. But I think that, you know, we don't really see this as journalists, and Venezuelans certainly don't either. But I think that behind the scenes, he's proven much more of a skilled tactician, sort of moving the levers of power, knowing which group he has to please today. Um, and that, 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 that explains a lot of how, in a country as the one that I described, he retains power. He's also obviously, and I have to mention this, he's obviously you know, not uh, shied away from relying on security forces yeah. to attack his opponents. And you know, we saw that in the protests last year, where 130 people died, more or less. Uh, hundreds more arrested, hundreds injured, jailed. Um, this is a country where a lot of people think the rule of law has disappeared. So, uh, you know, there's a combination of fear, uh, a little bit of ideology left that still support him, and I think also just his own understanding of that Chavismo coalition 
and how he can manage all those different interests. It should also be mentioned, though, that I don't think anyone right now, even from within his movement, would dare want to touch this country. I mean, it's completely chaotic right now. So who would want to, you know, grab that football? And what role does corruption play in sustaining all of this? Well, it's hard, I mean, to say, because obviously, you know, the, the corrupt individuals don't give us their tax returns, and <laughs> we don't see, you know, uh, very transparent, uh, you know, earnings reports from, from companies. Obviously, corruption is a huge part of the Venezuelan society today um, at every level. The, you know, there you can look at some of these, you know, international studies that have been done. Venezuela always ranks, you know, at the lowest of the low. Um, there are a number of lawsuits taking place right now in the United States against uh, purchase managers for the state oil company. Right. Um, the U.S. Treasury has identified what 4.2 billion—that's 4.2 billion dollars—at one single bank in Andorra and Spain, um, and they say that was money siphoned off from the state oil company by um, by, by by corrupt officials. I mean, what has to be remembered is this is a basically a oil society, so the money is always flowing. And you talk to Venezuelans, and again, this is not something that came along with Chavez. This is 30, 40 years ago. The big ambition for any Venezuelan businessman is to get a government contract, right. and they know with that, you know, it's easy street. And so I travel, you know, this corruption certainly existed before, and it's worsened under, I, I, I think, Chavismo precisely because uh, the checks and balances, the, uh, the rule of law has, I think, in many ways been, been, been compromised. And what, so one, one thing that I'm interested in is when you read about the, the, the economic situation that the country is in right now, what part of it is, or what's the complicated interplay of factors between economic mismanagement, because we read a lot that the you know Maduro's government and before him the the Hugo Chavez government mismanaged a lot of the economy and the oil resources and what part of it is corruption how does that all work like how do you see that contributing to the fact that the hyperinflation the three years of decline in GDP projected fifty percent decline in GDP I mean just the numbers are staggering of what yeah. they've done with the wealth of that country yeah uh, mismanagement is certainly a part and it be did begin you know with uh, with with Hugo Chavez. Uh, for example, the oil company, uh, again, I told you, sitting on top of the world's largest oil reserves, very much uh, a creator of the OPEC group. Uh, Venezuela was, you know, one of the pioneers of that. And in the 1970s, when they nationalized their oil company, it was basically a real turning point for oil companies worldwide. Uh, and for a while, it worked very well. They were producing, if I'm not mistaken, 3.6 million barrels of uh, oil a day when Hugo Chavez took office. Right. Now they're producing about 1.5, and it's yeah. falling every month. Um, so that speaks to the mismanagement. You know, the price, the price declines have also hurt them. Um, you know, the thing is, we've seen these shortages of food and other medicines, and you know. The, it's very clear that the private sector there almost has no oxygen to go out and do what, you know, businesses around the world do, which is, you know, to, to sell their goods at whatever price that they can get for it. There, there have been price controls. It's not, you can't just, you know, buy, you can't just use dollars there. You can't just get dollars there unless you want to go to the black market. It's very difficult for businesses to operate in that environment. You don't know when there's a routine inspection. 
going to take place at your at your store for to see if your prices are are, are not too high. Um, so yeah, there's a great deal of mismanagement. I think the oil Maduro took office right when the oil prices began to plunge, and that was a definite uh, big blow for them. I think that if it's, it's, it's sort of one of these unknown that you, you can't really sort of, you can just speculate on, but basically, had the oil prices stayed high, uh, would he have done better? And probably yes. I mean, the great thing about these oil societies is that there's always cash. So you can always, what's that, rob Peter to pay Paul. Mm -hmm. You can always do that somehow. Um, but right now, you know, right now they're facing, they're not paying their, their, their debted bonds. They're, they're, they're in arrears with Wall Street. Uh, nobody knows how long that can last before they get sued. Um, and some of those oil tankers get seized on the high seas. And, I mean, so now, I mean, we have this government in place that is exercising extreme control over society. We have an economic situation that is plummeting. We have corruption. And, and yet, the op there, there's no way forward. I mean, I, I noted you said none of the Venezuelans want to go back to what it was before Chavez. None of them want their country to be in the current situation, but no one's charting a way forward. Why is that? Huh. The opposition in Venezuela is probably the gift that keeps on giving to the Venezuelan government. They are torn apart by egos. Uh, you know, they've all studied. One of them, actually, Leopoldo Lopez, who some of you might have heard, actually has Ohio connection. He's, he had a swimming scholarship in, at Kenyon. Um, you know, these are the people that look what, I mean, this was the genius of Chavez, what he called the fourth estate. Uh, you know, I don't even know what that really means, to be completely honest. I uh, should, but I mean, it was just a great term that, you know, sort of painted everyone with the same brush and, you know, sort of, you know, really riled up the masses. Uh, these are people who are very privileged. Um, none of them, very few of them have the experience of, uh, you know, being, living in poverty. And they don't connect to the, to the Venezuelan people. These protests that you guys, I'm sure, have all seen on TV and are very dramatic. I've covered them, and I've, I've, I've been there in, in the streets with them. I don't think what people realize is that the poor people are not protesting. And that is the vast majority of the Venezuelans. Um, I think that is basically what is keeping Maduro in power. Uh, there's an incident that informs all of Venezuelan history, which was known as the Caracazo, the big uprising in, in Caracas, which was uh, 1989. Uh, it actually gave rise to Hugo Chavez. When the poor people did revolt, they came down from the shanty towns on the hillside, and for like a week, they just looted. And we don't, you know, they, and we don't even know how many people were killed. There were so many people killed during a very short span, maybe five days. Some people talk, I think it's officially it was 300. But I mean, they've talked about numbers as great as 3,000. We have not seen that in Venezuela, thank God. I mean, nobody wants to see that sort of, uh, um, you know, that sort of social unrest. But the protests that we have been seeing, what we saw last year, we have not seen them since, are really mainly among the opposition's base, uh, hardcore, middle to upper middle class people. It, it, it's branched out a little bit. I, don't, I think the people in the opposition would probably object to that. But, but basically, there's been no sort of rejuvenation of the opposition. They very much look like, like I said, the fourth estate. And um, it's hard. It's hard for someone to, come, to emerge to break through the political polarization. This is a country that, for the past 15 years, past 20 years, has been accustomed to seeing mass rallies, tens of thousands of people on the streets probably every month, right. um, you know, have seen, they've seen attempted coups, they've seen, 
you know, they've seen protests all, about once a year. They always start around April, so I'm getting ready for another another round. They, but you know, there's very, there's very, there's there's nobody who's emerged who's really been able to cut through the polarization. And what's sad is that that 80 percent, there's about 20 percent very loyal to the government, and I'd say about 20 percent very loyal to the opposition. But that 60 percent in the middle. Um, it's been very hard to, to capture their, their, their energy. And you know these are people who are not as politically active, but they are suffering a lot right now. They, are prob they probably voted for Hugo Chavez once or twice, but probably not very satisfied right now with the course of the country, but you know, no one's speaking to them. And they probably don't intend to vote. They, well, yeah, I mean, they will tend to vote if, uh, they will tend to vote, but for not for the wrong reasons, I would say. I mean, they tend to vote for the government in many cases because of patronage and, you know, they basically, you know, there's a whole theory about, you know, po the politics of hunger. And in a country that's uh, suffering from so much hunger and so many problems right now, whoever brings them a bag of food, and I'm not, you know, whether it's the government, whether it's the opposition, uh, will probably get their vote. And so taking a step back outside of the country and looking at sometimes when you have a country so polarized, a foreign intervention can be helpful. But in this case, we've seen a lot of attempts at dialogue and by the region and also, you know, U.S. foreign policy. Can you talk a bit more about the larger context? The international context? Yeah. So, you know, for a lot of times, for a long time, I'll just, I'll just focus more on the U.S. because I think it's, it's interesting, uh, and especially for our audience. The, you know, for a long time under Obama uh, and, and under Bush as well, there was a lot of debate about what you do with Hugo Chavez. You see, it's sort of like this dog nipping at your heels, but, you know, no, you know he, he nationalized your oil field, but then he gave you a, a nice penny for it. And, you know, eventually there was a good consensus that it started under Bush and continued under Obama that settled in of basically saying, you know, we'll just ignore him. We'll be the adult in the room and uh, let him do his thing and you know, we won't react to every provocation. Um, and that was basically the status quo. The problem was is that all along the Venezuelans were, 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 were looking for more. Uh, with Trump taking off, I have to say Trump is very popular among the Venezuelan opposition, uh, uniquely in Latin America <laughs> because uh, as you can imagine, Mexicans, uh, Central Americans, people who have sort of been on the, op the receiving end of his anti-immigrant uh, you know, sort of questioning of the U.S. trade policies. These people are not a big fan of, of, of Trump, but the Venezuelan opposition is, because Trump came into office, and I think in many ways this was a very personal um, mission of his. He decided that he was going to confront Venezuela's government in a way that Obama never did. And in the past year, we've seen things that I never expected to see. I venture to say we saw in the past year more from Trump than we saw in the eight years of Obama on Venezuela. They have elevated Venezuela to one of the top five foreign policy concerns of the U.S. government. I was just in Washington uh, last week. You know, it's amazing the degree to which the Washington bureaucracy has focused on uh, Venezuela, whether it's law enforcement investigations about drug trafficking, about corruption. Uh, State Department's obviously very active. The U.S. Treasury looking for ways to sort of uh, cut off access to, to, to financing. We now have sanctions in place against, I believe, more than 60 mm -hmm. Venezuelan officials. I'm not sure, but I guess that's probably only after Russia as the country that the U.S. government has most sanctioned individuals and insiders. Uh, there's now actually sanctions against lending money to Venezuela, which obviously will have a huge impact on the dynamics on the street. 
So, you know, there has been more recently a much more concerted uh, pressure on the Venezuelan government. And we've seen this not only by the U.S., it would be the Latin American countries who kind of had stepped in line. Nobody really wanted to confront uh, Chavez. Just as recently as two years ago, Latin America voted unanimously to elect uh, Venezuela to the Security Council. Mm -hmm. You know, you, yep. you obviously, and, and that was, you know, I mean, they would never do that today. Yep. In fact, they're discussing quite the opposite. They're discussing... Uh, a plan to have a ban on any Venezuelan candidate to any international organizations, because usually these countries vote in blocks. Right. Um, so we've seen a lot more action on the regional stage as well, as well as in Europe, Canada. They've also applied sanctions. Uh, basically, people feel, and I think this is in part because the situation has deteriorated so much, that you know there needs to be a line in the sand and that Maduro, especially last year when he created this constitutional assembly, mm -hmm. crossed a line um, that puts him into the category of, you know, it depends on the word you want to use. Some people would say dictatorship, authoritarian democracies, uh, whatever the, the, the word is. But they've crossed a line in the minds of many people in the international community. And I think we're going to see more and more uh, uh, involvement I think, though, that has to be what has to be considered here is what can the international community really do? I mean, these are essentially, in any of these countries, domestic problems. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I don't, you know, I don't think the U.S. is going to invade. There's a small sovereignty, yeah. Yes, right. Uh, well, I mean, Josh has given us tremendous food for thought. So, um, like we said at the onset, part of the fun is to hear all of your questions. So, I would, I'm going to ask one more question before we open up the mic. So, I would invite you to start formulating your questions and come up to the microphone. So, last question from you, Josh. Can you tell us about how it is doing your job as a journalist in Venezuela in these conditions? I can tell you some things. I can't tell you all of them. Oh. <laughs> I've got a lot of stories. First. <laughs> I have a lot of stories, but you know, we at the AP take our job very seriously of being able to talk to everyone in the country, including the government, including the opposition. And when we have problems, as we, as we have, uh, we generally tend to keep those in a private setting. I have to be honest about it. I mean. Um, I guess I can say what was on the public record, though, uh, because there's a lot of stuff that hasn't. But, you know, I had asked a question at a press conference to Maduro. It was right when oil prices were, were starting to fall, and he had the press conference for another reason. He wanted to talk about the death of a, law, a lawmaker who had been killed in sort of suspicious circumstances. It was a story I knew well as well, but, you know, I wanted to talk. I'm, I'm the press. I wanted to talk about oil prices. I thought it was a very relevant question about, you know, what are you going to do to prepare yourself for uh, for the fall in oil prices that was already happening. And he, he didn't want to answer it, and that's fine. I'm used to that. A lot of leaders around the world don't want to answer a question that they don't like. Um, but the what was sort of surprising afterwards is that uh, within hours, I was, you know, bombarded on uh, w uh, on social media, you know, have accused by, not, not by government officials, but by pro-government support, government supporters mm. of, you know, of basically being a Nazi, uh, and there was a picture of me that showed up on a website with a swastika uh, on my on my forehead. So that's some things I can talk about. Uh, what is definitely, it's very hard for our people when we're covering protests. It's very violent, these protests, uh, from both sides, I have to say. You know, these aren't, you know, peaceful protesters. They are definitely, you know, engaging in, you know, activities that would be punishable here or anywhere else, throwing Molotov cocktails. I mean, 
um, it, it's much more nuanced than perhaps even ourselves and the media portray. Uh, that's very difficult. We've had to, you know, had to deal with arrests, detentions, uh, injuries, uh, equipment being broken and stolen. I'm not going to say by who, but I mean, yeah, we've had we've had plenty. I wouldn't say a month goes by where I don't have to get a phone call and deal with something. Uh, another another incident recently. Our photographer was accused by the head of the Socialist Party on national TV of being a, quote, accomplice to terrorism. Mm. This was stemming from a photo that they attributed to him, but in fact, he did not take. And he wasn't even near the site of the, the incident, but he had, there was a photo, a very nice photo. We would have liked to have taken it because it was legitimate news. <laughs> I mean, I didn't want to, I don't mean to condone the violence by any, by any stretch, but it was basically a, a homemade uh, explosive that had, pa that had uh, that, that exploded right when, a group of National Guardsmen on motorcycles were driving by, and it was a huge fireball. It looked like things you would see in the Middle East, but me, as a reporter in Latin America, have never seen. Um, and yeah, he was accused of being an accomplice of terrorism because he allegedly had put journalists in a position to take that photo. Well, he was nowhere near there on that day. He was about two miles away. Um, yeah, I mean, that exposes our people to uh, arrest, harassment, um, you know, it, it's serious. It's not. It's not easy to be a journalist there. Um, but I, you know, I will say though, it's exciting. And I mean, the the we have at the AP, I would say, better than average relationships with the uh, government. In fact, one of the curious things that I've noticed recently, as the country has unraveled more, is that the government is actually talking to me more. Uh, and that's what I want. I want to know how they see things as well. I don't want to just see the opposition. The easiest thing for a journalist to do in Venezuela is to become chummy with the opposition. And, you know, they live in the same neighborhood as the journalists. Mm -hmm. they, um, they, you know, they're much more accessible. Their big leverage in this whole political fight is international opinion. So, you know, as a journalist, I have to do a great deal of self-control and draw barriers, draw lines in all senses. First question. Um, so you talked about uh, foreign intervention not really being uh, an option, and you talked about the 60% of the population that's not really ready to move. What are the most likely scenarios for change? Um, I would have to think a change in oil prices, but, but what are the other things that, from where you're sitting, are the most likely to cause the situation to change, for better or for worse? Yeah, a year ago, I would have told you the most likely scenario would be something like a palace coup. Someone from within the government would come in, kick out Maduro, see him as an ineffective leader, and sort of assert authority, sort of harken back to the Chavez days. Um, I think that's still a possibility, as well as it's still a possibility, a military coup. I, I sort of separate the two, I, I, but, but they're in effect the same because the military is so wrapped up with, with this government. I think I'm less and less certain that that's going to happen. Now. I mean, I was never certain that was going to happen, but I don't think that that's the, sort of the most likely scenario of a change right now. Um, I think the most, a, a more likely scenario now would be some sort of social uh, explosion. That 60%, you know, basically doing a repeat of the Caracazo of 89 and sort of the mass chaos and mayhem and sort of anarchy by people who literally are fed up because they can't eat. I think that that would, you know, and I think then that, there would, that would trigger a 
degree of bloodshed and you know that the country is not really willing to accept and that might make the military which is stuck very very closely to the government remember Chavez was a military man himself and Maduro has given them an immense amount of power including control of the state oil company now um, I think that that you know in, in a situation where they have ten, you know millions of people marching on presidential palace I think this time around, the military would not be as willing to uh, stop them. However, I have to say, I do think that there is probably the most likely scenario is that Maduro muddles through. Uh, remember, nobody wants to grab uh, burning coal. I mean, even people in his party, who I'm sure aspire to his, uh, his job, they don't want to inherit this mess. Um, and the opposition, actually, I mean, just to be clear, if I wasn't already, I mean, I put them at the lowest of likelihoods of actually taking power. I think that they are, are more ineffective than ever. Um, you know, so I guess that's not a very optimistic, I mean, that's, that's just sort of the outlook. It's just the reality. There's just not a lot of good options. In, there's, less, there's less worse options in, in Venezuela. And uh, I think the more likely scenario is that Maduro probably muddles through and, you know, maybe he fights on. The oil prices rise enough. They are rising now. Um, China and Russia, which are basically stepping in to provide the bulk of financing for Venezuela today, maybe double their antes and continue to provide them the financing that the U.S. and, you know, Western banks have basically stopped providing. Um, but I don't see a real change of direction in the government either. So... You know, I've been wrong before, but that's what I see about it. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. <clears throat> a little shorter. Um, it was very insightful. I appreciate that. So actually, I started up here with three questions, but I think you answered one of them, sort of. Um, so I'll stick to my other two questions. The one question is, you said that Bush and uh, Obama basically were hands-off uh, on Chavez uh, and Maduro. Um, but underneath the top level of our government, what kinds of things were our CIA and other possible intelligence organizations possibly doing to help, uh, you know, foment uh, opposition to those regimes? Did you have any insight about that? And my second question is more personal, and that is uh, I like to travel internationally. So, you know, what's the climate for travel in uh, Venezuela these days. <laughs> okay, well, that, the, the second one's easy. You can't go, basically. You need a visa. I, I, you know, if you want to do the experiment, apply for a visa. I don't know if you'll get one. Um, second of all, you cannot, your credit cards will not work there. Uh, you have no access to cash, so you basically need to call me up, and I need to lend you money. <laughs> I need to lend you my bank card, because there's just no way to, I mean, it's, you know, it's impossible. I'll talk to you. Okay, it's impossible. Really, it is. And it's a shame, because it's a beautiful country. Um... In terms of what the U.S. intelligence agencies, you know, I don't really have a good grasp on that. I would like to know more about that. I don't think that, uh, I think that, you know, the U.S. Embassy's presence there is very tiny right now. Um, Chavez did a very good job of uh, purging, you know, the, the, the Venezuelan military of any ties to the U.S. So, you know, it's very frequent in Latin America for uh, soldiers, junior officers, to travel to the U.S., Fort Benning, School of the Americas, used to be in Panama and, you know, get training in the best of military practices from the U.S., and there was always a sort of, uh, 
uh, an interesting uh, relationship that would develop with those people when they got back home. But, you know, Chavez came in and purged the military of all those people, except for, by the way, the chief, the minister of defense right now. He actually did study at the School of America. I don't know how he survived, but he, he, he's still there, and he's actually got two children who are American citizens because they were born when he was stationed here. But for the most part, I don't know what the U.S. intelligence agencies are doing. I would not suspect a lot because I don't think the U.S. footprint at all is, is, is at all very big right now in Venezuela. Um, you know, they have withdrawn a lot, basically. And, you know, um, what is true is law enforcement never stopped at acting. So you would see individual prosecutors, attorneys around the country, around the U.S. I'm talking about, would definitely follow the money. And as, you know, the strength of the U.S. financial system means that, you know, they don't need much of a pretext to argue jurisdiction about money laundering and corruption. So those have taken place. You saw, I don't know, you probably saw that the nephews of the First Lady who at some point lived with Maduro, were recently uh, arrested and convicted of drug trafficking in New York. So that has been active. And that actually has a huge role in the relationship, the role of uh, law US law enforcement. But I don't think, I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't, I don't have a sense that the CIA is, you know, have a lot of assets there, as I like to say. Two questions. Number one, are people fleeing Venezuela a lot now due to the poverty to go elsewhere? And number two, I've looked at the stats. It looks like Chavez really did do some things that really helped the people, but did he overreach himself and got and um, spend himself into a corner that caused all this to happen? On the people fleeing, yeah. I mean, I live in Colombia most of the time, and uh, Colombia mm -hmm. is seeing a huge influx of Venezuelans. Uh, that has been happening for a while. However, in more recent times, basically in the yet last year, it's a different sort of Venezuelan. The Venezuelans that came six, seven years ago were actually welcomed with open arms by the Colombians because they brought a lot of money. Uh, and you saw a lot of Venezuelans coming to the U.S., Spain, Panama. The more recent are much more desperate, and in fact are actually generating a lot of friction in a lot of the countries that they land up, Colombia being their principal destination because it's just, they literally can just cross the border. Uh, the statistics that I've seen are very, though, unreliable, but they talk about 30,000 people a day. But what has to be remembered about those is that a lot of the, because remember that I told you earlier how Colombians, my maid had been, she's Colombian and went to, to Venezuela in the, in the 80s. Uh, there's about three to five million Colombians living in Venezuela, or there were. And so a lot of the people who are coming back to Colombia are actually Colombian citizens. They had dual citizenship. And they don't necessarily register. It's a, it's a, it's a border, which is, you know, 2,200 kilometers. And, you know, they don't bring passports. You really don't need a passport. So we really don't have a good grip of how many people are fleeing. But yeah, I mean, you know, just last week I wrote a story about it. They opened in, on the Colombian border the first shelter to receive uh, Venezuelans. Now, we're not talking about like Middle Eastern, you know, refugee camps. It's much, on a much lower scale, thankfully. But, but you know, when I saw that shelter opening up, I got a little nervous. I'm like, well, we haven't seen this yet. Right. Uh, I'm sorry, what was the other? Well, did Chavez cause oh. all this by, his, by excessive spending? <laughs> well, they spent crazily, but it must be said that everyone in Latin America got rich uh, on commodities in the last boom. I mean, Chavez, you know, you mentioned also that uh, he did indeed reduce poverty and improve social conditions, without a doubt. But that happened across the region because a lot of these countries are commodity producing, commodity exporting nations. 
and they all did well to one another. I don't know if Chavez did a little bit better, a little bit worse, but they all did pretty well. And yeah, they, they spent they spent like crazy. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And I think that the deficit in, in, in Venezuela was always a huge a huge problem and those price controls I mentioned early earlier. Um, yeah, mismanagement was was definitely a huge part. Uh, on a lot of measures of uh, energy efficiency and financial efficiency, Venezuela seems to be like one of the uh, most efficient places to mine cryptocurrencies and proof of work systems. Um, and uh, pairing that with a comment that you had early on about money just being non-existent in the economy right now, is there a decentralized economy starting? Is there like an opportunity for digital currencies to start coming up? Yeah, we wrote a story about the cryptocurrencies uh, boom in, in Venezuela. You know, one of the things that's driving it, interestingly enough, is the cheapness of energy. When you have energy, because there's frequent power outages, but when you have energy, it's basically, you know, free. Um, you know, I should mention this, by the way. I just, uh, we just got the bill for our rental, our office in, in, in Caracas, and it's 75 cents a month now. Um, so, we're, you know, thankfully, I'm not going to bankrupt the AP with uh, with our rent. But, you know, energy costs are, it's, it's free. I mean, you can just, so you can have, I mean, I'm not a big expert. You sound like you probably are. But, uh, you know, the mining aspect of uh, cryptocurrencies, you know, they can just set up an entire office or building of computers and, you know, keep them on all day and it won't cost them much money. I think that's what's driving it. Recently, uh, President Maduro uh, proposed creating something that he's called the Petro, which would be a cryptocurrency to be backed by barrels of oil. The idea being here is that he, since he's increasingly being cut off from the Western financial system, he needs to find a way to, to pay his creditors. Uh, and if he can find a way to get around banks, he would absolutely love that. I mean, it's basically a way to get around US sanctions. Uh, that's a very, though, incipient thing. We don't really know how it's going to work. But I think it's an interesting idea. I'm not so convinced that it won't work, especially with governments, you know, with people and maybe in Russia, and you know, they may they may see a common interest there in sort of sort of escaping the rate the reach of the U.S. or the the the, the Western financial system. So yeah, it's it, there's definitely in terms of other things. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of bartering that goes on. Uh, frequently, I go to restaurants. You know, obviously, I have no cash, but they don't their bank there. They don't have a place to to take my bank card. So, you know, they just write down on a piece of paper, um, you know, here's my bank account, we, you know, transfer. Trust system. Trust works well there. Uh, taxis. I mean, obviously, no one can pay a taxi anymore. So, you know, they just, you know, and there's no Uber. Uh, so they just, uh, you know, this, here's my bank account. And, you know, sometimes people don't pay them. I always pay them. But uh, I remember once I even had to tip a bellboy at a hotel, uh, you know, $2, whatever. I mean, I, I, he, ga he gave me his, I mean, those professions that rely on cash, like bellboys, waiters, and waitresses, they must be really struggling, uh, struggling I always think. But, you know, people, people are very, on, at a personal level, beyond the politics, people are very supportive of one another, and um, they band together, I think, in a way that's, you know, very nice, actually. Well, I can tell you how the uh, defense minister survives. If he's an American, his name would have been J. Edgar Hoover. He probably knows everything about Maduro, and Maduro's afraid of him. My question deals with Brazil and Venezuela. Venezuela, you know, the corruption and everything going on, and looks like the rule of law isn't there. 
but in Brazil it appears to be that the rule of law is in there with all the top government officials and the bribery being out in the public. Does it have to do with Brazil has the rule of law and a relatively free press where Venezuela, from what you're saying, has a corrupt judicial system and no free press? Well, I lived in Brazil, so I can comment on that. Uh, I spent six years there, beautiful country. I think Brazil, though, comes from a – Brazil is different than Latin America. When you go to Brazil, they say, oh, that's Latin America. They don't consider themselves Latin Americans. They consider themselves an empire, and in fact, they were. When Napoleon invaded uh, the Iberian Peninsula, the Portuguese court uprooted and went to Brazil and set, uh, set up the monarchy there. And when the war ended and the, the king went back to Portugal, his son fell in love so much with Rio de Janeiro that he stayed there. And the son continued another, tw uh, f I think, 40 or 50 years as an empire, uh, Brazil. Brazilians think of themselves much more as an empire. They have an incredibly thriving, it's obviously suffering a bit right now, middle class. Uh, and they have institutions in a way that uh, no other country in Latin America can compare to. So they have got plenty of dirty laundry, plenty of corruption as well. But uh, what you were alluding to in terms of investigations against corruption, they've turned a page, I think, in the way that the rest of Latin America has not. And I wouldn't say it's so much Brazil versus Venezuela, but it's really Brazil distinct from the rest of Latin America. Um, a lot of the problems that are in Venezuela are not that uncommon in terms of the weakness of the institutions, not as weak in Venezuela, but I mean, Brazil is just in a different league. They, they, they really stand out. Uh, yes, how would you uh, characterize the Venezuelan military? Are they missionized uh, for the purpose of putting down domestic insurrections, or um, are there foreign powers that are looking to take over Venezuela and their oil fields? The Venezuelan military has some of the best war toys of anyone in Latin America. Um, they're not battle-tested in the way the Colombian military is, but they far surpass the Colombians in terms of hardware. They've got, you know, those Russian Sukhois. Um, they have tons of – Russia is their main supplier, actually. But they've got – you know, they're very well-armed, uh, not too disciplined, as you can imagine. Um, and, you know, as any, you know, anyone knows since the days of Hannibal, you need to feed them, and right now they're not eating. Uh, so uh, they're probably, I mean, that's one of the things that's going to be interesting to see in the next year is how loyal the military is going to remain to the government, uh, given their history. I mean, well before Chavismo, they've always been the arbiter of political disputes in Venezuela. So we're going to watch that very closely because I think right now there's a degree of the social conditions sort of reaching into the barracks in a way that they weren't previously. And uh, we'll see how, how loyal they remain. Um, you know, Chavez, because he was a military man, was very good about also giving them a mission to sort of embrace their neighbors and become part of the people. Uh, and they always talk in Venezuela, the government's always talking about the civic union, uh, military-civilian union. Um, and they have uh, – he gave them the vote, for example. For the first time in Venezuelan history, people in the military service – serving people in the military can vote. <clears throat> they control a number of ministries, uh, key ministries, financial uh, areas of the government. And more recently, Maduro gave uh, – kicked out the old management at the state oil firm and put a military man with no previous experience in the oil industry as head of that company. 
So, I mean, there is a theory uh, that the military is already in some ways running it. I think what it gets back to is Maduro's skill as a tactician, knowing who he needs to keep happy. And he's kept them very happy to the point that I think the military right now is not seen as at all. Uh, I think at the beginning of the protest last year, many of the people in the opposition were appealing very forcefully to the military to step in and defend the Constitution, as they said. I think right now, uh, you know, they've basically laid their cards on the table and nobody really sees them as an honest broker. They see them as completely aligned with the, the government. Thank you. Uh, th it's very educational. It's very informative. I think it's uh, Venezuela is an important country, but I think in North America we have, uh, you know, a poor view of it. And one thing that I want to ask you about, maybe you can extend on. So Chavez and Chavezism is part of a, the left in Latin America. Can you describe what that means? Like, what does the left mean in Venezuela, and how is whatever Chavez did part of that? movement in Latin America? Thanks. Well, remember, the democracies in Spanish-speaking Latin America were all founded around the same time as ours. Uh, Simón Bolívar, who, uh, by the way, uh, there's a great biography by, about him by an American, well, she's Peruvian, but she works for the Washington Post. Um, I forget her name. Arana, Arana, A-R-A-N-A is her last name. Marie Arana. I would do a plug for her book because I really liked it. It was catered towards American audiences, sort of describing the the. The, the fervor that existed at the end of the 19th century, the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, that both uh, inspired Bolivar, inspired George Washington, um, and you know they were born basically with the same ideals as our democracy. Uh, they had a legacy, a colonial legacy, a bit different, but you know the left today does really not uh, emphasize as much the political rights of its people. It, it emphasizes much more comparing it to the U.S. left. It emphasizes much more the economic rights. And uh, for the vast majority of, uh, of Latin Americans, you know, in many of these countries, poverty rates of 50%, uh, that has a lot of appeal. And, you know, we've seen that throughout the history from Peronism in Argentina, uh, you know, uh, Allende in Chile. These people want to have money in their pocket. I mean, you know, they, they don't have as much comforts as, as we do, and so they put a much more higher premium on those economic rights. And I think that that's been sort of the left's, in Latin America, their, their, their biggest rallying cry. Um, right now, they're actually going through a rough patch uh, in government, in country after country, we've seen a lot of the leftist governments either kicked out of office uh, by elections, or in the case of Brazil, uh, an impeachment. But, um, you know, I think they're, they'll come back because I don't see those uh, inequality, I don't see inequality going away. I mean, these are, these are intractable problems and, um, you know, I think what's hurting them now is the fact that the economic cycle in Latin America has sort of come to an end and the corruption. I mean, there certainly was a lot of corruption, but I don't think that that's something that's exclusive to the left. When the right wing is in power, they steal a lot of money too. I mean, that's sort of sad about Latin America for me is that I've covered it for so long and you know, the issue of corruption does never go away. And it's on a scale that, you know, uh, we don't even realize here in the United States. Um, so they've got a lot of work to do in terms of strengthening their institutions, which probably is not a left-right divide. Nobody really on either, the right wing tends to make some uh, noise about strengthening institutions, but they actually don't in strengthen them when they're in power, so.
I wrote it down so I can organize my ideas. Um, so you mentioned that oil prices are going up and that, pull, that, will pull, that could help the situation in Venezuela. But given the fact that uh, some other countries have offered to help by donating medicines to Venezuela or food and the government has told them so public organizations cannot really give them to the people, do you truly believe that Venezuelan, go Venezuelan government wants to help the people and like feed them and I don't know, help them in general? I, I do believe they want to help them, yeah. I mean, I don't know if they have the capacity to, but I believe that they want to help them, yeah. I don't think that, uh, I, I, I can't believe that. I mean, I just couldn't believe that they're so nefarious to want to starve their people. Um, but that they're willing to accept the situation as is, is already an indictment of their priorities in many ways, because I think that it doesn't need to be like this. Um, and the fact that they are willing to tolerate some of this, to me, is a sign that they have a real addiction to power. Um, but I do think that they want to help their people, sure. Nobody wants to see their country starve. You, are you Venezuelan? <laughs> yeah. Oh, OK. <laughs> a lot of Venezuelans don't see it that way, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the issue of humanitarian aid, you're right, what she's pointing out is that a lot of countries have offered to provide humanitarian aid, and the government has steadfastly refused, saying we don't have a humanitarian crisis. Um, you know, it's a, that's a big pill to swallow for a country of Venezuela to say that we need help like that. Um, I also think, to be completely fair, uh, I recently got sick when I was there, and I had no trouble finding medicine. I'm not trying to say that things are good. But I think that, and this is something as again, as we were talking about my role as a journalist, I have to be very responsible about, which is that it's not quite as bad as the Venezuelan opposition says it is. Um, and what I've learned about Venezuela is that the government lies, but the opposition lies too. And uh, you know, my bullshit radar is pretty high. <laughs> I don't know if you could say that on radio. <laughs> Well, with that, um, Josh, we'd like to thank you tremendously for your, this conversation. We've learned a lot. Thank you all for your questions. Have a good evening. Before ending, I just wanted to like say, because I was thinking about how negative this all sounds, uh, Venezuela and Caracas are, is a beautiful country. I mean, you know, amidst all of the sort of drudgery that I described, I have to say, when I lived there, I never slept as well every night. Are you from Caracas? No? Okay. The, uh, you know, throughout the entire city, crickets, you can hear them all night. It sit beautifully in a tropical valley on the mountains. The temperature, it's spring-like all year round. There are big uh, macaws that come and land on my apartment building every day. And, you know, the Venezuelan people are some of the, the nicest, warmest, uh, people in, in, in that I've met in the world. And I think that, you know, for all, and they're also a lot of fun too. I should mention that, you know. And, you know, if, if I sound very negative, uh, it has no reflection on the quality of the people who live there. And they are some of the greatest people that I've ever met in the world. And I think that's the best question. Sure. Oh, yep, go ahead. <laughs> so you were just mentioning something. I'm actually from Colombia. Okay. So I, it touches right on the board, literally. So um, 
you were mentioning something about the Simon Bolivar and how everything started in, in, in Latin America in terms of democracy as well. Now going back in history, not only for Venezuela, but Colombia and the rest of Latin America, what do you think is the biggest difference that made everything so <laughs> different between North America, considering the US and Canada, and the rest of Latin America? I have, I have I thought about this a lot, yeah. I have, too, I have a very inappropriate answer, though. Uh, um, and I can illustrate this, and this is something from Colombian history, actually. There, we all know the story of the Mayflower. Uh, the Mayflower, the Puritans, you know, they, they, they came over to this country, but they brought their wives. Uh, and that was a big thing. Families settling in the United States, or what was, you know, a colony then, uh, that was a huge impact. Both the, the mentality from the beginning of settlement of Latin America by Europeans. Obviously, there was a huge native population before. The, uh, the settlement of Latin America all dates back to the El Dorado myth, the myth of, you know, I'm going to strike it rich, I'm going to hit the gold mine. And the, the big ambition for anyone, any adventurer coming, you know, in the 15th and the 16th and 17th centuries would have been to find that mythical city of gold and then go retire in Spain. They didn't bring their families. And I think that in some ways the, the, the patterns of colonization um, put these countries off in, in very different, these, these parts of the world off in very different paths. Um, and again, I think that's very, that if my wife were to hear me, she'd think I'm being extremely simplistic and overly patriotic. But actually I think that it had a big role that we need to analyze a little bit more and, 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 and see how important the composition of the migratory trends to the U.S. versus uh, Latin America were. Well, Josh, thank you again. I think you've given us all a lot to think about in terms of Venezuela, democracy, and what this means. And we can also tell you really care about the country. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. <laughs>